0: Welcome to Pragmatic. Pragmatic is a discussion show contemplating the practical application of technology. By exploring the real world trade offs, we look at how great ideas are transformed into products and services that can change our lives. Nothing is as simple as it seems. Pragmatic is part of the Engineered Network. For other great shows, visit engineered.network today. This episode is brought to you by Sapient Pair and their iOS app, Shopee. Shopee is a free collaborative shopping list app that's simple and easy to use, and we'll talk more about them during the show. I'm your host, John Chigi, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Carmen Parisi. How's it going, Carmen? Pretty good, John. How about you? Very good. Very good. Thank you. So I just wonderful, want to start wonderful. with... <laughs> yes. So I just wanted to before we dive into today's topic, which will be software radios, uh, I just want to have a quick uh, discussion about uh, what's happened in the last six months. So when I wrapped up pragmatic about six months ago, I actually had no intention of bringing it back at all. I think I did a pretty comprehensive job of wrapping it up actually and I didn't I underestimated significantly underestimated just how uh, how many people that annoyed. And um, I, the fans of the show were very, very vocal to me. And I continue to get emails about it, you know, even this week. And just asking about ways that I could bring the show back somehow. And just if it meant doing it less regularly or or something, you know, getting more help with the show, something like that. So I, I did a lot of soul searching and over the last six months. And I decided that what I think was lacking wasn't just Pragmatic as a show, but it was the kind of content that I think that Pragmatic offers which is sort of focused engineering-related content. And like, I tackled the way an engineer would tackle a problem. And, and I guess that's what I felt was, was lacking in, in the podcast space. Yeah, there's some out there, but they're scattered everywhere. And I looked for networks that would support a show like this. And fundamentally, I just I couldn't find any. Yeah, I looked, I couldn't find any. So being crazy, I decided to start my own. And I'm calling it the Engineered Network or 10 for short. Now, it's a small network, and for now, and it may stay very small, or it may grow. We'll see what happens. Either way, I guess I'll find out where the rest of the world feels the same way I do, I guess. Anyway, in order to keep making the show pragmatic, I've cut the frequency of the show back to once a fortnight, which many fans suggested, so I'm taking that on board. I'm going to do it once a fortnight. Uh, Carmen will also be uh, helping with show production for me, and I'll be starting a second podcast called uh, Causality. And Causality is inspired by episode 11 of Pragmatic. Got a lot of good feedback about that, and I really enjoy um, cause and effect. So there's a link in the show notes with more information about Causality. Um, Feel free to have a look at that. Uh, There's going to be another show at the launch of the network called Nutrium. And uh, that's a podcast by two chemical and process engineers, and they've been running a website of the same name for several years now. And so I'm actually really excited, not just to bring back Pragmatic and but to also bring two, two new shows uh, to listeners of Pragmatic that they that I think that they will find really interesting. Now, both Causality and Nutrium will be launching in the second uh, full week of October, and all of the shows on the network are going to be produced fortnightly. So uh, the network itself, the, ad, um, the URL for it will, is engineered.network, and uh, there's also a newsletter you can sign up to, and it'll give you a, uh, an update every week as to everything that's happened that week. There will also be a store coming shortly with a few bits and bobs in it, and there will be a Patreon account that you can contribute to as well if you wish. It'll be rolling out shortly. So there you go. So we are back. And now that's on the table, (laughs) I just also want to say that I'm currently open to exploring new shows. So if you're interested in making your own podcast solo or with a friend or a group of friends, you're practicing professional engineers, then yeah, you know, please get in touch via the contact form at engineer.network and we'll see what we can do. All right, I think that's enough of that. I think we should dive into the topic, Carmen. Don't you think?
1: Sure, yeah, let's go.
0: I don't want to bore people with all of the other uh, other stuff. So um I wanted to talk about software radios because previously I talked about uh I've talked about radio a few times, episode thirty-nine as well as episode number five, actually going way back in time. But I never really did much talk about modulation and demodulation. And that's one of those things that, uh, because of your background and experience in software radios, actually, you know what, before we dive into that, mate, can you just give the listeners like a couple of minutes summary of of your background and and just experience so they know where you're coming from?
1: Sure, yeah, no problem. Uh, So I'm an electrical engineer, and I'm in the analog and semiconductor industry. I'm an applications engineer working on uh, switching regulators for uh, Intel vCore applications. So the main processor voltage that all the, you know, your Intel processor runs on, I make sure our parts meet the long list of specs that Intel puts out, transient response, settling time, efficiency targets, you name it, I I have to meet it, uh, which is interesting. (laughs) It's easier said than done sometimes, especially on these uh new Skylake designs for tablets. They're uh you know, motherboards the size of a deck of cards almost, and you're like, oh, just throw a few more capacitors on there, but you <laughs> really can't do that. <clears throat> yeah. You try to make twenty amp, uh 20 amp transients with six oh three capacitors, it's it's difficult. Those things like to sing. But anyways, getting too deep in there. <laughs> no, that's uh, fine. Yeah, so I studied yeah. So I studied electrical engineering in college. Uh, I do have my master's degree and I did um, communications as a focus. I was building uh, some hardware for a radio to encrypt the channel using the randomness of the carrier. Yep. And it, it, it worked on paper and my, my circuit worked, but the bits it spit out did not ex- do what my uh, teacher expected. You're not so. supposed to
0: tell them that bit.
1: Uh, you know, yeah, I, I'm like to be open about that. I got no oh,
0: secrets. You're just so honest. That's good.
1: Okay, <laughs> that's
0: fine. That's fine.
1: That's all yes. good. I'll, it could it could be my circuit, although it worked. I don't like to look at the schematics anymore. I was young and inexperienced.
0: Uh, mate, I'm a, everyone's a everyone enthusiast, it, but everyone's designed a circuit that hasn't worked. And if you haven't, well, actually, hang on. I wonder how many people actually have. I have. In fact, I've designed a couple that didn't work, but that's okay. That was a long time ago. And I also claim that I was young and blah, blah. So it's all good. No judgment. Yes. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> yeah. Cool, if I could have a
1: third revision, I would do things much differently.
0: Yeah. Just one more spin of the board. Come on. We'll do it again. It's all. It's fine. It'll be oh, fine this all, time. It'll that's be That's all we need. <laughs> Fantastic.
1: Revolutionize everything.
0: Of course we will. Third spin. It's all I need. Oh, I'll tell you what. When I was at Nortel and they said, um, we're going to have to spin the board. The collective groan in the conference room was just oh, its unbelievable. Because these boards, some of them are like 12-layer stacks, and they're like, oh, God, respinning a 12-layer. Okay. Anyway.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, so, customers just love to hear they have to change their layout when it's almost production, and you notice they routed a sense line next to the noisy phase node. Yeah, that's and it. that's just, what's causing the errors. Just
0: put a barnacle on there. She'll be fine. Ship it. It's fine. Just another mod. <laughs> another mod, not a problem.
1: <sighs> Airwire it. It's fine.
0: Yeah, exactly. Anyway. All right, cool. Well, thank you for that. At least everyone has a bit of an idea of your background now. I'm not going to tell people about my background because if you haven't figured out by listening to Pragmatic for the last two years, then you probably... Yeah, anyway. Uh, I don't like to
1: talk about myself, so bits and pieces will show up during the show. Well, there you go.
0: Cool. All right, so... um, All right, carriers and uh, modulation. So I just want to start with the, the very basics. And I guess with carriers and modulations, a carrier just means a single frequency or a single frequency over a certain bandwidth. And essentially, modulation is about carrying data and using a radio to carry that data, radio wave carrier to carry that data, hence why they call it a carrier, because, you know, it's carrying. Anyway, um, although not like someone carrying a bucket of water, but never mind. So anyway, modulation. The most simplest way of modulating a signal is to simply turn it on and off in a sequence of, you know, I don't know, Sounds like pulses, uh, dits and dars, for example, and that's uh, Morse code essentially. And that's where it all sort of started with modulation technology. So uh, the idea is that, you know, with Morse code, we turn the carrier on and off for two different uh, durations, and that forms data in groups. And then we space those groups apart and they form letters. And obviously, then we space them slightly more apart to make words. And uh, hey, presto, you're, you're communicating. Uh, it's slow, it's inefficient. And uh, yes, but it works. The technical
1: term, I believe, is on-off keying.
0: Uh, yes, on-off keying. That's true. Uh, the funny thing, though, is if you really want to break it down, it's kind of like a tri-states time domain serial data transfer mechanism. So I thought about well, how would you classify it? And that's how you would because it's three states. You've got off, which is state one, dit, which is a short sound, that's state number two, and da is state number three. So, it's technically tri-state, and it's all done in the time domain. So, time domain, tri-state, serial, data transfer. We all call it Morse code, though, because of Samuel Morse and all that. guy. That, hmm. Anyway. Okay. There you go. Fantastic. Morse code. Uh, but analog modulation, or AM, is far more interesting because that's going to carry um, things like, oh, I don't know, our voices, let's say. And uh, the idea is that if I send a carrier and I vary its, its uh, amplitude, uh, that is to say, um, yes, it's amplitude <laughs> with an analog waveform over the top, uh, then that's really simple. You strip the carrier off and you then have an analog waveform that sounds like the voice that originally started it, that was originally modulating it. Uh, it's it's so easy and that's why analog modulation, AM, was the first kind of uh, radio technology that that carried voice and music. So, you know, decoding is easy. You know, you can you decode it using like a crystal radio. Hey, Do you ever have a did you ever have a crystal radio when you were a kid? Or even as a grown up? Uh, I didn't no judgment.
1: I did not know. But I have built one of those uh you know, like the simple science projects for kids or whatever where you use like a, a penny and a nail and yeah, yeah, like yeah. stuff around the house you can build a an analog demodulator.
0: Yeah, those are cool. Yeah. I've done one of those yeah. I had a crystal radio set too, which I promptly broke within a week, but that's okay. Uh yes. But yes, no, I did have one of those and I also did the whole, um, I'm trying to remember, we don't have pennies, but anyway, it was a coin. (laughs) It was a coin of some kind, I forget the denomination, but anyway, yes, I know exactly what you're talking about. But anyway, the big downside of AM though is that, uh, well, it picks up noise and I mean like atmospheric noise and if there's a pop or a click or like a lightning strike or all sorts of different things and all that noise gets picked up by the signal. So your AM signal that started out as this pristine, beautiful, modulated thing with your voice on it, by the time it gets to the other end, it's got all sorts of other rubbish in there. And as a result, it sounds, well, terrible. Well, yeah, it was good back in the day when that's all you had. It was that or nothing. And the wireless, you know, was a big deal. But obviously, we could do better. And we did better because that's when we came up with uh, frequency modulation or FM. And the good thing about FM is that uh, because the frequency, so if you can imagine the carrier frequency, let's say, I don't know, 100 megahertz. And uh, if you were to vary that frequency, uh, plus or minus uh, 10 kilohertz or 20 kilohertz, uh, based on uh, the intensity of the audio going into it, you're essentially modulating that carrier frequency uh, with uh, the audio information from the music or from your voice. And that is completely unnatural and that's not what i mean what i mean is that there are no naturally occurring frequency modulated radio sources so if you get atmospheric noise um it will not it will not affect the frequency modulated signal so the fm signal essentially is all the same amplitude so that means yes. yeah and and that's great right because that means we we get rid of the noise problem so that's why we it's to an fm radio
1: it's beautiful and crystal clear so it's, it's also uh truncated when you pick it up in your car right because yes. it uh you spread the frequency content out and you can't recreate all of it so you have to pick a certain power level that recreates the audio enough Yes Exactly. I think it was the beta factor. I'm trying to remember my communications class. Yes,
0: no, that that's that is that is exactly right, and that's why FM will drop out much earlier than AM. So if you're the same distance away from the radio antenna, and this is notwithstanding the frequency problems with you know ionospheric propagation and and uh, bending around the uh, radio horizon, but beyond those effects, point to point, you will get a uh, uh, you will get your ear will be able to decode and hear AM. Rather than FM, it with the same amount of attenuation because of that. Because it has to pick out that lowest point where it can recover all of the data. And that's why FM tends to uh, drop out as opposed to fade. So AM tends to fade. FM just seems to just like drop out and chop. You know, that chopping sort of... I don't know. How do you describe that? Should I do a sound effect? Sure. Okay, here we go. There you go. (laughs) <laughs> That's my FM dropout noise, okay? All right, okay, cool. Let's... We're going to
1: record that. It's going to be on our pragmatic soundboard for the oh, next episode. God, please no one make a soundboard
0: for this show. <laughs> It'll just be me saying no. anyway and fantastic. And that sound
1: effect. Yeah, you, you, you introduced me as a co-host. Really, I'm just going to be like the wacky morning DJ. I'll just <laughs> sound drop. If you
0: make a soundboard, I'm, yeah, I'm
1: we'll talk later. All right, so FM, <laughs> there we go.
0: Now, there's actually a really good animated uh, GIF, GIF, whatever. G-I-F, on the wiki page uh, about radio. There's a link in the show notes. Check it out if you're interested uh, because it sort of shows better than I can describe with words. And this is always one of the problems, you know, on the show trying to describe with words What's easier sometimes with the drawing. But there you have it. We're working with what we've got. All right. So that's FM in a nutshell. Uh, phase modulation is kind of like FM, but the phase of the carrier is modulated. And that's even harder for me to describe with words. Let's just say, yeah, phase modulation and move on. Because, well, unless you've got a better way of... Unless you have a better way of describing it, but... I can't say that I do, th- no. There you go. Okay, lovely. Let's agree to move on. Uh, okay, so let's talk a little bit about narrow band uh, versus wide band. Because you may have heard, or well, maybe you have, maybe you haven't, uh, the expressions. I guess that... When I had a look through the the Wikipedia entry on this, I wasn't completely happy with the description. But here's the description that it gives. is a channel of communication... Oh, this is me paraphrasing it. Channel of communication where the bandwidth is narrow enough that its frequency response is essentially flat from the start to the end frequency. And I guess the problem that I've got with that is that it's like the frequency response of what? You know, is it the amplifier? Is it the antenna? Is it... uh, mixer is it uh what the hell is it the discriminator it depends on what signal it is but i mean see i think it's a very it's a very generic and non-specific statement i think that it's far better to say that we roughly use about 25 kilohertz and everything's relative so you could say that compared to a 25 kilohertz signal a five kilohertz bandwidth signal is narrowband Compared to 25 kilohertz, but then again, you look at something like spread spectrum signal for um, you know LTE or something that's you know 10 megahertz wide or something insane. Then 25 kilohertz looks like it's narrowband compared to you know 10 megahertz.
1: So I figure. Oh, see, I was even interpreting it differently when you said the channel of communication. I thought you meant the channel itself.
0: Well, yeah, I do mean the channel itself. But I mean with spread. Oh, okay. Yeah, with spread spectrum, if I if I were to pick channel one, then on LTE, then channel one. Yeah, you know, would be could be ten megahertz wide or five megahertz wide, you know, depending upon. True. You know, so that's a channel, and that's a chunk of spectrum that Sprint or AT and T or you know Telstra, whoever they are, will will pay and say, okay, well I've got this frequency band and I've got five channels in there that I can use for whatever I want. You know, whereas you know narrow band stuff is it's it's bro it's it's like doled out in very very small bandwidths like. You know, if you think about um, fixed terrestrial fixed radio, and I go and pay for a license. Traditionally, this is what I do for a telemetry system. And telemetry system is going to be operating at 430 megahertz or 430.125. Well, you get a, a license, you'd pay a fee for you know 433.125. The next channel is you know 4, um, two I'm trying to do this math in my head. God, I shouldn't be doing this in my head. I need a calculator. I'm an engineer anyway. Point is, uh yeah, 25 kilohertz, that was a narrow band channel. And I think that a lot of that stuff is now going away because of spread spectrum and you know, it's a lot easier to get away with frequency frequency overlapping with spread spectrum. That's great until everyone piles on top and then you get a big, you know, mess, but never mind that. All right. Why am I talking about this? I'm talking about this because uh it's an it's just a, a, important to understand the difference in the effect of the data rate and when we get into modulation technologies and different things and we start talking about software radios, the, the bandwidth kind of matters. It's it's part of the equation. So, um, wideband essentially is sort of still a thing. But honestly, when people say wideband these days, they're really talking about spread spectrum. And spread spectrum is really wide. Like I was saying before, megahertz wide. So, I don't know. I think that's probably about enough about that. I don't know what else <coughs> there is to add about yeah, that
1: was a that was a very vague definition if we agreed and disagreed at the same time. Yeah, did we? Yeah, I think we did. Oh, well, anyway, there you have it.
0: Okay, cool. Now we get into the interesting stuff. And, well, okay. More interesting? Sound drop. Yeah. I I, I think it's more interesting. Okay. This is a modulation um, technique, and there's a couple of them, and they kind of overlap in some ways. There's subtle differences between them. But, okay. QAM, uh, quadrature amplitude modulation, and it's uh, friend, cousin, relative, whatever, brother, Uh, QPSK which is uh, quadrature phase shift keying so the idea is um, let's imagine you've got two carrier signals and each carrier signal is 90 degrees out of phase with each other so with waveforms because everything we're talking about is all sine waves so sine waves start at zero at zero degrees you go to 90 degrees and you know they're at uh, positive maximum you go to 180 degrees they're back to zero again but they're heading down and then you go to uh, 270 degrees, and their maximum negative, and then you go back to three, go to 360 degrees, also known as zero. Uh, you are back at zero again, and this oscillation goes on indefinitely, not as long as you've got a carrier. This is a sine wave. I'm assuming listeners know what I'm describing when I say a sine wave. I hope so. So, if you're going to put two out at 90 degrees out of phase with each other, and then you can key them on and off together at the same time or apart. And then you vary the amplitudes of each carrier as you're doing that. What that can, do, what that ends up doing is it creates essentially like a constellation, uh, like stars but more organised. Anyway, and uh, what you can do is on, on an x and a y axis, you can actually plot these. And again, Wikipedia page link in the show notes is a great animated GIF, 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 G-I-F that shows uh, the constellations. So you can have like a but they they usually call them by the number of points, and because everything's based on binary, uh, you know, so binary in in both dimensions. So you'll have uh, zero and one, and then zero and one x, zero and one y, which will give you a maximum of four possibilities. So zero 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 one, one zero one one, and of course you 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 go up in in those multiples. So you'll go two, uh, oh God, two eight, two. Two, hang on, sorry. 4, 8. <laughs> God damn it. Oh, 4, 8, 16, 32,
1: 64.
0: Thank you. That's what I was trying to... Yeah. See, I should have written that down. But anyway. <laughs> but yes. Powers of 2. Yeah, exactly. So, thank you very much. Um, save, them, save them me already. Okay. So, uh, again, great animated uh, GIF in the Wikipedia page to, that shows this. Now, um, when we were talking about this before, you said there were a couple of... Uh, I, I, they, Okay. So...
1: How about you talk quickly about IQ modulation, which is related to this? Sure. So, uh, IQ modulation, like you said, you start with a sine wave and you generate another carrier that's 90 degrees out of phase, which is a cosine wave. If you want to go in the most basic sense, um, and you do this, uh, you know, there's a couple of shift registers. You can make a quadrature oscillator it's called. And so you, you know, mix in your information signal with the carrier and send it out and, uh, When you decode it, you know, you get your – I'm trying to think of an easy way to do all this. Just watch the videos, I guess. (laughs) That's cheating. Um, Oh, man. So depending on how you vary the amplitudes and the frequencies and the phases of the I and Q, uh, I standing for in-phase, Q standing for quadrature, um, you can recreate, you know, the amplitude modulation, the frequency modulation, the phase shift modulation that we talked about earlier. Um, and it, it's relatively simple, I guess. Um, so for example, if you're doing, uh, you know, you, you get your eye and your Q and your demodulator and you see that they're 30 degree or 30 kilohertz difference. You don't know if that's 30 kilohertz above or below, but because you have the I and the Q, depending on which one leads, if the I is leading, it's 30 degrees above. And if it's Q's leading, it's 30 degrees below, I believe I might have that backwards.
0: Well, I'm not entirely sure if that is backwards. I thought that sounded correct. But in any case, um, there was a couple of good tutorials that you linked to. There's a YouTube video and there's yes. a link to Analog Zoo, I think it is. about Analog Zoo, yes. Yes. So those links will be in the show notes if you want to dig into that a little bit more.
1: Yes. One is a little more math-based. Well, they're both a little math-based, but they cover it from different... Uh, different approaches. Alan's, uh, Alan Wolke, W2AEW on YouTube. He covers it more from a, I'll call it a practical, um, approach. Uh, Although that's, you know, not what the analog zoo isn't practical, but he covers it from more practical approach and explains IQ modulation. And then, uh, Craig over at analog zoo delves into, uh, Euler's equation and Ooh, so nice. for those yes um so not that that isn't practical but it's it's maybe some of the listeners haven't seen that math before but it essentially relates exponentials to uh sines and cosines and it's the foundation for pretty much all the electronics these days yeah absolutely right so <clears throat> and uh yeah, when i was when i was talking about quadrature leading or you know following the uh in phase signal I was referring to the Euler's equation, which the imaginary term with the sign on it, you know, whether it's plus J O plus J sign or minus J sign.
0: Cool. Uh and the other thing about Alan uh and uh so he's W two AEW, I think is his call sign. So he's an amateur radio operator. Yes. Yeah, so- you can
1: hit him up on the uh I don't know, one of his frequency bands that he's hopping around on. <laughs> he's got his car outfitted with the radio as he travels around the US selling oscilloscopes.
0: Oh, really cool. Yeah. Well yeah, yeah. as a fellow radio amateur then, um, yes, I I would highly recommend uh, yeah, well that's that's cheating. But anyway, yes, that is good though. I had a quick, <laughs> I had a had a look at it, it was very nice. So all right, cool. So um, enough about IQ modulation, I guess, for the moment. Uh, I want to talk about uh, mixing and intermodulation just, just quickly. And it's important to understand that there's there's limitations to all of the Hmm. What's the best way of describing this? When you're stripping off the carrier, however you're doing it, whether it's an IQ modulated signal, an FM modulated signal, AM signal, it doesn't matter. All of them have the same problem. The higher you go in frequency, because the higher you go, let's say your 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 carrier signal is um, you know one gigahertz. Well, it wasn't that long ago that it was impossible to directly sample one gigahertz. And the reason I say directly sample is that if you're modulating a signal at one gigahertz. You need to be able to sample all that data at at least uh, twice that rate in order to... Yes, the Nyquist criteria. Exactly, that's right. And because you need to be able to sample... It makes sense when you think about it, right? Is if you've got a sine wave, how can you determine the period of of that sine wave unless you take two samples in its overall period? You don't know when it starts and finishes otherwise. So that's the basic way of thinking about it. But the truth is that the way that people have gotten around this for a very, very long time and frankly still do in a lot of cases, is uh, mixing. So how mixing works is if you get two two frequencies very different and you mix them together, you'll get intermodulation products. So you're going to get the sum and the difference as well as your two original signals. So if I've got a signal at Um, 10 megahertz, and I mix it with one at 100 megahertz, I'm going to end up with 110 megahertz as a byproduct. I'm also going to get 90 megahertz as a byproduct plus my original 10 and the 100. And that mixing and the intermodulation product, sometimes you want to avoid that. But in this particular case, what you're trying to do is you're trying to step down that frequency to something that you can sample. You want to down mix that to a point at which uh, or down convert or however you want to think about it. Uh, to to so a frequency that you can sample that you can actually extract with with components that are actually that actually exist, and
1: I don't know. That's ha- the IF frequency, correct?
0: Yeah, intermediate frequencies, exactly. And the typically, they'll you'll have a local oscillator, and the local oscillator will will be tuned to a specific frequency to downmix that, so that you can then adjust what you're listening to. And that will then, and then what you need to do is you have to put it through a filter of some kind. So that then is leads us to bandpass, bandstop filters. So if you've always got a local oscillator of specific frequency, you can actually tune that out with a bandstop filter. So it, it will essentially allow only signals through. Oh, depending on your roll off and the bandwidth that you that you've got, it'll bandstop filters will, will essentially let everything except the the small narrow band you're trying to selectively remove. Uh the opposite of that of course is a band pass filter, where a band pass filter will only let through the frequency particularly that you're looking at. So what typically you'll do is you'll you'll downmix the signal and then you'll put a band pass in the region that you're actually able to sample. So if you're downmixing a gigahertz and you're downmixing it through a through a multi, single stage or multi-stage um receiver, and you drop it down to say maybe, I don't know, 10 megahertz, 20 megahertz, I don't know, whatever frequency or less. Uh, then you just put a bandpass filter to, to filter out that one bit. So then all the high frequency stuff, any intermodulation products, intermodulation frequencies will all be tuned out, by, attenuated by the bandpass filter. And that is the signal. The actual, some people refer to that as the baseband. You've actually dropped it back to baseband and you can actually then sample that and then away you go. And when I say sample that, I guess I'm jumping ahead of myself because this, the topic of this, this episode is software radio. So obviously, you know, we're going to be doing some analog to digital conversion and sampling. But in the traditional sense, that's just how radio receivers worked. And the most popular in the last, I don't know what, 50, 80 years, long time, has been uh, the dual conversion super heterodyne receiver uh, or dual conversion super het for short. It's actually really not that much shorter, come to think of it, but anyway. So, yes, um, cause you'd think they'd, they'd call it something like the the d hat or something like that, or D D D C het I don't know. I can't think of yeah. a
1: good... I just Anyway. We'll write a letter to the IEEE.
0: That's it. I'm going to get on that as soon as we're done. Okay. <sighs> 80 years too late. That's fine. Anyway, all right, <laughs> so... Uh, so, yeah. So, dual-conversion dual, dual super receivers. Uh, built a couple of those myself. Um, one of them was part of the NN1G uh, transceiver that I built many years ago. And, you know, they're great. They work great. However, uh, that's not what we're here to talk about. So, those are the principles behind uh, how we deal with this uh, problem of going higher and higher in frequency. And it's great. We want to go higher in frequency because that means that we've got lots more bandwidth and more spectrum to deal with. Everything's going high frequency, right? So uh, Wi-Fi, uh, eight hundred two eleven n, you were looking at um, two point four gigahertz. That gets congested. We go up to five gigahertz. When that gets congested, we'll probably go up to ten or fifteen or whatever. I mean, as you go up in microwave, obviously the radio doesn't. The radio signals don't pass through solid objects very well, if at all but that's okay in small areas and everything's going that way. Like micro cells and pico cells and all that's all good. Anyway, I'm getting off topic. Okay. Direct digital synthesis, which is going the opposite direction just quickly. And then we'll start talking about DSPs. So, uh, do you want to talk about direct DDS at all or yes?
1: Um, sure. So, the, in the context I know of direct digital synthesis... um. You know, when you, when you want to make a sine wave, a cosine wave, a triangle wave, you know, some sort of waveform, um, instead of doing it using analog techniques where you'd start with an oscillator, either a sine or a square wave oscillator and shaping the waveform to its desired, you know, frequency and amplitude and all that stuff using op amps or other analog techniques, um, you would use a lookup table or a, uh, you know, some, memory cells to hold the patterns for the waveform and you spit them out of a digital to analog converter and then you just low-pass filter to remove the uh you know the switching artifacts from the DAC and there you go ready-made signal yes so the
0: beauty of a DDS is that you can get a lot of excellent precision and control and that's awesome but once it's been synthesized then typically you'll still go through a local oscillator stage to step it up to a final frequency because the DDS has the same problem. Um, the DAC has the same problem as the ADC because you know it can only um, sample at a certain rate. So there's an upper limit to how much, you how, how high frequency you can directly synthesize because your switching rate just gets too high.
1: Yeah, and because you still need the low pass filter and everything too, um, mm-hmm. you yeah. know, to get rid of the switching artifacts, it's easier to do that at a lower frequency. Building the filter becomes much much easier.
0: Yeah, that's a very good point too. Actually, quite right. So, I just wanted to just throw that in there because all of these principles we're talking about they work in both directions. So, a software radio. When you say software radio, software radios, you know, can work as a transmitter as well as a receiver. But we're going to primarily talk about them as receivers. But it's important just to clarify that yes dds's do exist yes and they are kind of a form of software radio in a sense but um anyway i'll leave that there because i think the dsp angle is 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 more interesting okay (sighs) you know before we go on i think we should talk about our sponsor for this episode and uh and that's sapient pair now sapient pair decided after years of being frustrated with to-do list apps when they were shopping to create an iOS app for the iPhone. It's called Shopee. Now, there's lots of to-do list apps out there and that people use as shopping lists. And I know because I've used a lot of them and they're just they're not very good. It's because when you go shopping, it's a very specific use case for a list. And an app that's tuned for actually making and shopping from that list can do a far better job than just a to-do list on its own. And if you're shopping for more than just yourself, Shopee can really help you out. It's a collaborative shopping list app and it's simple and easy to use. I picked it up and instinctively knew how to use it the very first time I used it. It's not cluttered, doesn't have a lot of options. It doesn't presume you live in a specific country or present you with a huge list of hundreds of brands of butter or different kinds of milk either. Just type in what you want, and that's your list. It remembers the products you've typed in for future lists and even the order that you liked to enter them in and the order that you bought them in, check them off as well. And there's no fussing about assigning items to aisles and sections, none of that. So any of that is, I think that's pretty cool. But then you can share that list with your spouse, your partner, your family, and they can add things, they can mark things off, they can reorder items as they need to. Changes to the list on one device will show up to anyone else's list that you've shared it with. And it's pretty much instantaneous. It's really, really is. I've tried it over 3G and on Wi-Fi and it works really well. So... When you go shopping from a shared list, you just tap the Go Shopping button and everyone sharing that list will get a notification. Shopper uses a phone's GPS to let them know what shop you're shopping at and then uh, you can give them any last minute uh, opportunities to add things to the shopping list. And, and Shopping will even turn off the Go Shopping automatically when you leave that shop if you forget to do so yourself. Another feature it's got that I love is Pocket Lock. If you're security conscious and you've got a passcode set on your iPhone, there's nothing more annoying than having to lock your phone, slip it in your pocket, get it back out again at the end of the aisle just to unlock it again so you can look at your list to see what's next. Well, Pocket Lock disables the screen when it detects that it's in your pocket and or your bag and it re-enables it as soon as it's removed. There's no passcodes and there's no touch ID required. No messing around with that. No fuss. It's great. Now, my wife and I, we've used it so much now it's become a verb. So the other day she asked, she asked me, can you shop me a list of things? Seriously. I'm like, okay. Did you just say shop me a list? Hmm. So, we don't need any of those last minute, is there anything else you need while I'm at the shops? We don't need those phone calls anymore. I just shopy her a list. Now, shopy's free to try for the first month, after which it becomes ad supported. No risk, no loss of functionality. Now, if you want to help out the developers, though, you can in-app purchase for a 3 or 12-month ad removal. Now, normally it's $1.99 or $4.99 US, respectively. But if you subscribe during the month of October 2015, it's on special for just 99 cents and $2.99, respectively. So, if you want to help out the show, please visit this URL, sapient, that's S-A-P-I-E-N-T dash pair, P-A-I-R dot com slash engineered and follow the links To the App Store from there, and that will help out the show. You need to follow that URL if you want to help out the show. Thank you once again to Sapient Pair and Shopee for sponsoring the Engineered Network and for being a launch sponsor for the show and the network. Thanks again. All right, digital signal processing. Hmm.
1: See, I'm just an analog knuckle dragger, so this is this is your domain here. Oh dear. Okay, fine. well, then,
0: DSPs. First of all, I think it's important that we understand uh, the idea of how, what if, okay, first of all, a spectrum analysis. So when our signals go past us and we look at them on something like an oscilloscope, it shows us what we call the time domain, which is as each moment goes past, every second, every hundredth of a millisecond goes past, we take a sample and it shows us the in the uh, amplitude at that point now that's a time domain representation you can build that up as a trace on the screen you know and yeah you know, like for example on a digital sampling oscilloscope and you can see the trace go past and in SCADA you know SCADA systems for example I could trend the temperature I could trend you know fan speed what motor speed you know flow gas flow airflow water flow whatever. And these trends are all time based trends, time based uh, signals, time domain signals. But what a Fourier transform gives us the ability to do is it gives us the ability to convert that time domain information into spectrum information. Because the Fourier, the the whole basis of of, uh, Fourier is that you can have with an infinite number of frequencies you can combine them up top of each other to create any time domain waveform that you would find a given an infinite number of course and well we're not going to create an infinite number but the theory then works in reverse so what we can then do is we can take a time domain waveform and we can essentially extract from that the component frequencies and intensities and amplitudes in order to then recreate that signal so we essentially take a time domain signal and can extract. Oh, okay, that's made up of a signal at 20 kilohertz, one at 45 kilohertz, one at 100 kilohertz, and one at you know 10 megahertz, whatever. You know, so that analysis that's a, that essentially breaks a time domain signal down into a signal spectrum. So, does that make sense? I'm thinking. I'm hoping.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems alright to me. All right, cool. There you go. I'll just I'll yeah. take that as a yes. Be- yeah. In, in a nutshell, you can recreate any waveform as uh, uh, the sum of an infinite number of sine waves. Yeah. There you go. Exactly. So. And there's there's plenty of nice uh gif gifs online that you can look at to uh yes. you know explain that a little better. Yes. They're so interactive are interactive too.
0: Yes. There's some links in the show notes. Again, uh, feel free to check those out if you want to dig more into it. I'm not going to go into the maths behind um, Fourier's transforms and everything and i guess the other thing i just want to quickly point out though is the term fourier transform it kind of refers to both the frequency domain representation as well as the mathematical operation itself that associates the frequency domain representation um to a function of time if that makes sense so people use a fourier transform in those um both parlances so they're both valid i guess but anyway um sometimes you'll hear things referred to uh, sometimes you'll hear, hear referred to as uh, as FFTs uh, fast Fourier transforms which is an abbreviated form or an approximated form of a full Fourier transform so um, FFTs... Are, yeah,
1: it was, hmm. that was kind of developed in order to make it easier to compute, right? Yes. For, you know, using doing on computers. Exactly, yes.
0: Because, I mean, if you were to try and calculate everything down to the last order, then you'd never finish. And that's the whole point. And so that we say an infinite number. You don't need an infinite number. You just need the most significant 10, not even 10 sometimes. But anyway, that's not really the point. I don't want to go into FFTs and, you know, any of that vector math or any of that sort of stuff. I'm not interested in that. Not, well, I am interested in that, but that goes too deep today i think okay so where do you start you start with sampling and that is the analog to digital converter so we take an analog signal and we sample that and how do we sample that well there's multitude ways of doing it but just real quickly uh what we do is we will uh let let's you know what? I'm not going to go
1: on. That's an episode in itself. You're right.
0: Topologies. You know what? You're right. I'm just not going to touch that because there's actually, I, I was about to start and I thought, hmm, there's actually quite a few ways of doing it. So, let's not. Let's assume. <laughs> I think I've got
1: two or three textbooks just on that. Yeah, you're not wrong.
0: All right. So, let's leave it there then. Okay, good. We're done. The No, I'm just kidding. All right. So, Let's just assume that that's all good, all right? You can now take that signal and go chop, 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 and I now know exactly what voltage is at what time and I've built up this beautiful string of data. I'm going to run some FFTs on it and I'm going to spit out my frequency domain information. Hold that thought. A little bit of history because I have to have some history in here because I just love it. Why? I don't know. Anyway, first DSP was actually the TI5100 and TI meaning texas instruments of course uh that was released in 1978 so two years after i was born uh although technically you could argue the first dsp was i think um was developed actually the year i was born so 1976 there
1: you go anyway i thought it was uh you know found on the alien ship in roswell we just reverse engineered it it was was in that documentary independence day i don't know (laughs) yes uh,
0: that was a (laughs) document that's what I, i i knew i got something wrong about that show skull and crossbones on the damn computer I will never ever get over that (laughs) ever come on really really that's what a virus looks like people it's a skull and crossbones on the screen go course
1: anyway Uh, alright fine anyways
0: (coughs) the show is complete now we've uh, made fun of Independence Day anyway all right. so uh, that was released in 1978 Um, a fun fact about DSPs most DSPs only do fixed point math or maths or mathematics depending on how you want to think about it not floating point and it's interesting because the precision provided by floating points generally not required. And because floating point maths takes longer than in the interest of speed, most DSPs will stick to fixed point. Something that I just thought was interesting. Anyway, now as DSPs have become more powerful, faster, lower power, more computations per second, it's been possible to use them to directly sample higher and higher frequencies. And that's why that's relevant because that then leads us to a point where we don't have to down convert absolutely everything or if we do, not not so much and we can actually sample wider and wider parts of the spectrum and that leads us to software radios and when I say a software radio I guess I mean we're using uh, a firmware which is just, you know and I hate this distinction between, you know Firmware, drivers, operating system, like uh, kernel, throw the kernel in there. I don't mean KFC. And operating systems and that. I mean, I'm yeah, it's like it seems like an arbitrary distinction. I mean, I understand why I guess to some extent people like to break that down, but when I say firmware, you know what I mean? It's like digital signal processors have a program to tell them what FFTs to run on what and how and what to shift to where, blah, 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 right? That is essentially software defining how the dsp cranks out what it cranks out and that is generally referred to as the firmware for that dsp DSP. and these days of course we store that that on flash which is great because flash ram can be you know reprogrammed which is very cool now in smartphones and i guess i kind of sort of you know tying this into something modern that we all use in our hands well not all of us but many of us now use in our hands You've got multiple layers of software that I kind of talked about. I guess the operating system. So iOS is technically the Apple operating system on their phones. And Android, for example, is the operating system on uh, uh, Google-based phones. However, at a baseband level, I saw about baseband before, but baseband in the software sense, and this is the whole problem with baseband because baseband was a radio term before they hijacked it, but never mind that... Um, so which evolves john uh, is that what that is (laughs) or maybe it's just like uh what's the word con they they've conflated one or they've made one convoluted through their conflation i don't know anyway it's just annoying
1: yeah very cromulent explanation ah
0: nice Good. that's my new word for the day cromulent okay so (laughs) at a baseband level um qualcomm have the thing they call the rex real-time kernel now I actually found some interesting slides about this. Uh, reverse engineering, a Qualcomm baseband. And they look at an iPhone 4S uh, and how that's set up, and that's actually really interesting. So I've got a link in the show notes if you want to have a read of that, if you're more interested in baseband and so on. Going below that, then we have device firmware. So that's the DSP level, some of the hardware IO controllers. So if you've got a you know, hardware IO control for USB, or you've got a control, hardware controller for for, you know, some other device, you know, like a GPS chip or whatever else, then, you know, that's the firmware level. Now, I guess the problem I've got is that sometimes the two get twisted together. So, baseband and firmware, you know, in some cases, they'll say, oh yeah, well, the iPhone's an update to its baseband, you yeah, know, and some of that will have firmware files in it that may change the operations of the DSPs or, or whatever. Maybe they're related to the real-time kernel, I don't know, because I haven't dug into that deep, but honestly, um, that's the layer I'm talking about. I'm not talking about the operating system. So this is the actual uh, radio hardware itself, the actual DSPs crunching away. Now, it's not unusual um, to update that when you do a software update on your device, but it, 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 oh, sorry, I'm saying it's not unusual. Actually, it is unusual. Sometimes they do it, sometimes they don't. But the bottom line is that yes, they do do it sometimes and sometimes they do put fixes in to the DSPs.
1: One of the things If you make too many fixes, do you have to get it recertified? <laughs> I'm
0: reasonably sure. Yeah, actually. So this is one of the other things of software radios that people don't realize is that you think that, okay, I, here's my brand new iPhone 6S Plus extra bonus, whatever. Uh, and actually, I should make a joke about Galaxy Samsung Galaxy because they're, they're worse. <laughs> but anyway, point I mean, in terms of their naming, right? But anyway, all right. So... If I then make a massive change to the DSPs... And now this thing's going to... You know, transmit, receive ever so subtly differently... Then you you technically... You may need to re-qualify that. So, it's the sort of thing that I they don't do very often... Probably because they they can't... You know, not without a whole bunch of other overhead... Unless there's a known issue. Anyway. So, um, right, where was I? Okay, yes. So, one of the great things is that... At least this is remotely upgradable. I mean, I'm going on about the ability to do this... But actually people forget that it was only a couple of decades ago that we were stuck with um, EPROMs and E-squared PROMs, right? Where you couldn't remote... There was was no flash, right? You couldn't upgrade these things, you know, properly. I said E-squared, that's electrically erasable. But even the electrically erasable ones... Typically, you didn't electrically erase them on board. You would take them out of a socket, put them into the programmer that would apply a higher voltage to electrically erase them before you reprogram them. So, they weren't the sort of thing that you would just do remotely because, of course, communication wasn't there. So, these things would be out in the field somewhere and they'd be standalone devices. There was no internet of things and, therefore, it wasn't possible. So, now that it's become possible uh, and at Nortel, we're moving towards that. Proves about the late 90s. By the early 2000s, it was pretty much commonplace to use um, flash memory to store the firmware and you could then remotely upgrade it, which then comes with all sorts of other risks. But anyway, so, uh, and there was another project I was working on that was just secret squirrel, can't say anything about it really. And we had full remote DSP firmware upgrading. That was in 2001, 2002. So, anyway, so you've actually played with a bunch of, um, software radios and uh, and kits I think did you say
1: uh no i haven't played with them myself although the one does look pretty interesting and i kind of want to order it since it's relatively cheap um i i think what you're thinking of is my my co-op experience back in oh yeah that's uh, right it was, i think it was 2010 i worked for um a company outside of washington dc and they did um software defined radios for you know all the various three letter agencies in the government and I I helped test those, you um, that, that was pretty cool. I was actually on the the beamforming network team, so there was an array of eight or nine antennas, and you you know if you heard a signal, you know on whatever band they were interested in, it would tell you what direction it was coming from. Cool. So that was that was pretty cool. Yeah. So I worked on the the beamforming boards. You know, I'd connect an antenna, test it, run their program and then, you know, run it down a small analog signal chain to make sure that all worked. And then there was another group that digitized it and ran the software-defined radio. Cool. So that was cool. So I, I think just before I jump into the kits, um, yeah. you know, when we're talking about a software-defined radio, we're talking about changing, you know, uh, you know what channel you might be on or, you know, de- decoding the actual audio or video or whatever it is you're sending using the radio, correct? Yes, Yes. Yes. So, you know, it, it, software-defined radio replaced essentially the knobs on your old analog radio, or, you know, in certain cases you could use a, a variable capacitor to change certain performances of the radio or, um, or the varactor diodes, uh, which kind of act like capacitors if you want to get into some junction theory. <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh, that's fine.
1: Yes, and you were talking about e squared proms and all that stuff. Uh, yeah, true. You know, being hard to change. You, you actually having to desolder capacitors or twiddle them with a screwdriver. You know, that, that's even farther down the technological chain back in time. Oh yeah, yeah. So much more flexibility when you go digital.
0: Oh, absolutely. And um, when you mentioned before about the capacitor, uh, I was thinking about yeah, you know, that actually would change the local oscillator frequency, so that when you were on the TV set what you do is you would um, have fixed positions for the channels. And as you would move the channels, that you would have a capacitor behind it, a capacitor, um, an air capacitor. And as you go from channel 0 to channel 1, that would change the, the capacitance by a linear amount. And that then would change the frequency of the local oscillator so that it would drop down the signal to the same uh, part of the bandpass filter that then the TV signal got decoded. We'd strip off the carrier and then you'd start decoding the horizontal and, and vertical line uh, information. And that would then, you know, change the ray tracing on the screen. So, yeah. but And that was, that was cool because in amateur radio, what we used to do is we used to go and salvage those from the old TV sets and then use them for tuning our antennas. So, yeah. And don't touch them with your hands. Otherwise, you might, you know, like hurt your hands. And I think I mentioned that once on an old episode. Yeah, I think I did actually. Yeah, I actually... Yeah, blew a bit of a hole in the webbing of my hand. But never mind that. It's all good. It's fine. It's healed now. It C. is. It's fine. Perfectly fine. You don't need, you don't need hands. Yeah, exactly. You got two. Health it's and safety. Vanity. What's
1: that? You know? Hey, anyway. <laughs>
0: but yeah, so, yeah um, so tell me a little bit about these kits that you are talking about.
1: Sure. So if you're interested in playing with a uh, software-defined radio, uh, there's a couple different ways you can get started. Um, you know, I guess the, the basic one would be if you wanted to roll your own, but... Uh, that's a whole project in and of itself yeah. if you just want to play with the radio. Um, there's an article we'll link to from uh, the IEEE Spectrum, and they say it's a $40-ish software-defined radio. Um, they also throw a Raspberry Pi in there for some other stuff, which is about $40. But the actual radio part is about $40, and it uses a um, a hacked HDTV, set, uh, HDTV setup from Europe, and uh there's a certain chip on there the RTL2832U and they found out that this chip has a feature where you know if you enable it it can spit out the raw IQ data the uh IQ modulation data that we talked about before instead of the demodulated TV stream uh it's very hacky from the article that I've read about it and it can't transmit but it's pretty low cost um Another option, and this is the one I was mentioning that I kind of wanted to buy now, soon as it's like twenty-five dollars. Uh, it's from Adafruit, and it's uh, just a very basic setup. It uses the actually the same chip, and it you know spits out the uh, INQ data for you. And then, if you want to drop some serious money, serious being much more than twenty to thirty dollars. Um, There's the HackRF, which is sold by Mike Osman, and if you want to hear more about it, he's been on a few episodes of the Amp Hour podcast, but um, I'll let him get into it as soon as it's his project. And it's $300, you can buy them on SparkFun, and this can transmit and receive, and he's currently got a nine-course set of videos available on his website on how to use the HackRF, and if you're lucky enough to go to one of the security conferences he attends, he also teaches two-day seminars as well on software-defined radios. Nice. Yes.
0: So I guess um before we wrap this up just on software radios, I guess um the thing that I think is so cool about it is that there was a time not that long ago when everything that we did was channelized, everything we did was was selected through, you know, like you would design you design a circuit and it would forever be that circuit. You could never modify it, you couldn't change it remotely, you couldn't fix problems there was no there was very little software on it and even when the early ddss came out you know even then the receiver chain was still using dual conversion superhets and you know it was still you know it hadn't reached that point where you were able to sample at such high frequency that you could actually directly you know through a dsp process all of this information and decode it however way you would like like decoding the raw i and q data using an adc and a dsp was like was unheard of until recently. So now all this technology has reached that point where you can have a generic DSP, very powerful bit of bit of, you know, you know, silicon sitting in your device and you can you can play with it just by by changing software characteristics, you know, changing what 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 looks at what what decodes what information. And there's no changes to the circuit board anymore. There's nothing to fiddle with, there's no like you say, no buttons, knobs that've all been replaced by the software. And then you can build a user interface for it and then yeah, you know, it's like everything just became so much easier, and you can just plonk it all down. Have a generic board that does it all, or a generic chip that does it all, and that's how a lot of this stuff is possible. You know, they say, well, they're using the like on the iPhone, Apple are using uh, like they're using Broadcom chips or Qualcomm chips and all that, and they they've distilled all this stuff down to these radios. They've done all that engineering. They figured it all out, and. All of the, all the little problems with him, little, little small amounts of impedances and ductances between different things. They've all sorted all that out. It's all been designed. And all you have to do is bring the software and the firmware and away you go. You've got a finished product. And that is the one thing that blows me away, knowing where we've come from. And as the sampling rates get higher and higher and the technology is refined and DSPs get more powerful... It's going to mean that we can get away with denser pack structures. I mean, obviously, you're still going to hit the the wall at you know Shannon's limit, but you know, still um, another topic for another day. Anyway, and and all that, but it's going to get better. It's going to get cheaper. It's going to get faster, and uh, and that can only be a good thing in the end. So, if you want to learn more about it, there's plenty of links in the show notes where you can. So, did you have anything else you wanted to add quickly, Carmen?
1: No, I think you wrapped it up pretty nicely.
0: Alrighty then, fair enough. Well, if you want to talk more about this, you can reach me on Twitter at John Chigi, or you can follow at uh, Pragmatic Show to specifically see show announcements and other related stuff related to the show. Remember though, that Pragmatic is now part of the Engineered Network. It also has an account at engineered underscore net and that has announcements about the whole network and all of the shows and you can check them all out at engineered.network. Uh, if you'd like to get in touch with Carmen, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you, mate?
1: Um, well, you can reach me on Twitter. Um, I'll put my handle in the show notes. It's uh at fakeeequips. It was a blog I started a long ago that uh pretty much defunct right now, but you know, branding and everything. <laughs> sure, that's okay. So I still use it. Um, and then uh, you could also get a hold of me as well. I do another podcast called the Engineering Commons that's also bi um, with Jeff Shelton and a couple other engineers, and we talk about just about generic engineering topics. And there's a contact form on our website, um, theengineeringcommons.com. You can reach me that way as well.
0: All right, fair enough. Uh, if you had any uh, feedback about this show or the network, then you can use the feedback form on engineer.network. That's also where you'll find the show notes for this episode. Uh, I'd also like to take this opportunity to thank uh, Sapient Pair and their iOS app, Shopee, for sponsoring the Engineered Network uh, as a launch sponsor as well. If you're going shopping and you want a great collaborative shopping list app, then Shopee can help you out. It's ad-free for the first month, so check it out at sapient, that's S-A-P-I-E-N-T, dash pair, as in two, dot com, slash engineered. Uh, finally, the network also has a Patreon account um, opening shortly. If you would like if you like what we're doing here at the Engineered Network and you'd like to contribute something, anything at all, it's very much appreciated and helps out not only to keep existing shows going, but it also helps bring new shows to you. So uh, there's also a few perks in there. So uh, check it out. Uh, it all helps. Thank you so much in advance for that. And thank you, everyone, for listening. And uh, thank
1: you, Carmen. All right. Thank you, John. Happy to be doing the show with you.
0: Thanks, mate.